All right, here we go. We're back in Exodus chapter 12, and we're finally coming to what is the last plague, the last strike upon Egypt as they prepare to leave. That is, the Egyptian, or excuse me, the Israelites prepared to leave Egypt just as God had promised. And the, the key word that comes in our text that kind of summarizes all that God's been doing through Israel in this time is there found in verse 42. It was a night of watching by the Lord. God watches over His people, and He's always watching, which can be maybe not initially encouraging uh, to think that God is always watching. Because uh, let me give you a converse example of uh, example in literature of one who is always watching, and it is not encouraging. To quote, Big Brother is watching you, the poster says, found in George Orwell's novel, 1984. And then he says this, Always the eyes watching you, the voice enveloping you, asleep or awake, working or eating, indoors or out of doors, in bath or in bed, no escape, Orwell writes, always watching. Admittedly, that's pretty creepy, I think. And yet, who's watching you? It's not so reassuring to have Big Brother out to watch you, to catch you. He's trying to entrap you, to conform you. He, so to speak, lords over you, to make you conform and bring you to his own ends. But others are watching and always listening to us, aren't they? Who's watching you all the time, listening to what you say? Siri, turn my lights on or turn my phone light off that is now on. i got to turn this off somehow. Ah, there we go. Siri, turn the lights off in the house. Alexa, we need more dog food. Why do we do these things? Why do we let ourselves be watched and heard? In that case, I think it's for convenience. But why does Apple and Amazon do these things? Is it not to just get more of our money? <laughs> so they can strike when the iron's hot, so to speak, when the fancy strikes you to purchase something. So Big Brother watches over you, always listening, so to speak, so he can manipulate the characters in his 1984 story. Or Siri and Alexis, watch us now, or listen to us, so they can take advantage of our finances, so to speak, preying on our wants and our greeds. But what if there's another one who's watching, always watching, but not to observe, not to take advantage, not to trap us? but to take care of us. You know, like your mom and dad watched over you. And your mom and dad who stopped you from putting your hand out on the stove and hurting yourself in some way. Don't do that. That's going to hurt. I'm watching out for you. Son, don't step out in the street now. I was watching for the cars because I was watching for you. I'm glad you were watching. I'm glad someone watches out for us. And that's the truth, as part of God's people, God is always looking, He's always on the watch for us. Why? Because He actually cares about us. Actually, in Christ, He's even promised to watch over you all the way to glory, all the way to home. However, we might know that's true, but as we walk through life, it doesn't always feel like it, does it? Does it always feel like God's watching out for you? Actually, throughout the Bible, you can go and see character after character, person of history after person of history saying, God, where are you? 
God, do you hear me? God, do you, have, you, have you noticed me? Do you know what's going on in my life? And what the word, though, from Exodus reminds us is that, oh, yes, he knows, and he's always watching, and he's always working. We might not know how this is going to turn out. We might look at the circumstances around us and go, how can good come from this, God? Well, Exodus teaches us God's watching, and he's in control because he cares. So to summarize this truth for us from Exodus, life might seem chaotic at times. It might seem out of control. It might seem like there's no good thing that's going to come out of this. Well, that's not true. It is in great control. Why? Because God is watching. He's watching over you to keep all of His promises. But here's the thing, and we see this with Israel. As God watches over us to care for us, He then calls us in response to watch and wait on Him, to trust Him to trust Him to take care of all of it. And we'll see that show itself here as we turn to the text, and we'll see two ways that God is watching, watching His promises, making sure they come to pass. And we see it in this word that He will take care of things. And the first thing He will take care of is He takes care of the opposition. The call is for us is to trust God, rely on Him, to take care of the opposition just as He promised. Except in this way, when we're talking about taking care of, right, we're talking about like He's going to take care of His enemies. He's going to take care of those who oppose Him. He's going to put them aside, any who try and oppose Him and stand in the way of God's will. But again, what do we find? This is God's job, not yours. You're called to trust Him. Watch and wait and see Him do the rest. Now, as we turn to the text then, to this point, there's been quite a build-up to come to this final plague, right? To reset the stage, where are we in history? God's people have been enslaved in Egypt, oh, for 400 plus years. But now God's arrived on the scene, and He's come to rescue them after this 400 years to get them out of there. But as the word first comes to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he's told, let God's people go, Pharaoh says, no way. He stubbornly refused. And at that hardened heart, God has brought these nine thus far plagues. They came in threes. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And what did Pharaoh get in the end of that? Devastation. Egypt was ruined. And yet even still, to that point, Pharaoh would not let them go till now. After this final strike, God has promised He's going to relent. Something that seemed so impossible, so unlikely before, is now guaranteed by the very word and promise of God. He's going to do it even at the Egyptians' expense. Well, what's the final plague? Of course, we probably know it. It's the killing of all the firstborn sons in Egypt. Now, so far as we've gone through the text, the the plagues have come and gone rather quickly. But now, as we noted last week, things kind of go in slow-mo. This is like the instant replay of the touchdown, whether he hits the pylon or not. God's focusing on the centerpiece here of God delivering Israel out of Egypt at the death of the firstborn son. For the last chapter and a half, we've been preparing all for this final plague of killing the firstborn. How you need to kill the first, how he's going to kill the firstborn, and how you must sacrifice the Passover lamb, and how you must never forget, and have the unleavened bread, and all of this. We've been preparing for it. But now as we turn to verse 29, it finally comes. Justice has arrived. Let's read it. Verse 29. At midnight, 
the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. Now, here's the first thing we must observe, and this is a sobering reality, just as we take a step from this text. But God shows no partiality, no favoritism. He shows no partiality in judgment. And that's not good news for anybody, in a sense. God doesn't show favoritism. He's, in that way you might say it, an equal opportunity condemner of the guilty. It doesn't matter who you are. You're a sinner, you're condemned, and judgment's coming. That's justice. He's an equal opportunity punisher of the wicked, an equal opportunity condemner of the sinful, which is all of us, such that, as you see here, it doesn't matter what house you come from. You can, come from the, you can be the firstborn of Pharaoh's house, or you can be the firstborn of the captive in the dungeon. It doesn't matter. All were struck dead. Before God's judgment seat, it doesn't matter in that way who you are. It, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how successful you've been. It doesn't matter what, what family you're from, where you grew up where you went to school, whether you went to school. It doesn't matter what degrees you have or job you have. None of that matters. Nor does it matter how oppressed you think you've been or disadvantaged you've been. Judgment's coming for us all. And there's no one who's exempt. None will escape. So, are you ready with that coming reality. For as we say, no one escapes except there is one way, isn't there? We've seen that with Israel. There's one way to prepare for this, and we're all heading, careening toward that day. And of course, the only way to get ready, and it's pictured in the blood of the Lamb that was spread on the doorposts of those Israelite homes. Who escapes the judgment? Who is in that way exempt? Well, no one's really exempt, but who escapes? Those who take refuge in the blood of another, right? Judgment's coming for you unless you take refuge behind the blood, behind the death of Christ for you. That's it. That's the one place where you can be safe. When God's justice for your sins comes down not on you, but on someone else who took them. Dare we not ever think then, we saw this warning, remember from last time, Israel themselves were warned, don't go out at night tonight. Why? Lest you're going to die. Don't go out tonight. It's not safe. There's only one place to be safe, and it's behind the blood of the Lamb. Because God's justice is coming. He's going to take care of your sins. But here's the question. Will He take care of them on you or on His Son, Jesus Christ? So be ready. Because as you see, as this text unfolds, it's about justice. And justice now is coming for Egypt. They're getting exactly what they deserved. Egypt's getting their comeuppance right here. And it shows two ways in this next couple of verses. First, and we noted this before, But why is it that God has chosen to judge the firstborn sons in Egypt? Why were they selected? 
Well, it's retribution for Egypt's violations against the firstborn son of God. Who's that? Well, of course, we know the ultimate firstborn son is Jesus Christ, but it's pictured here first with Israel, his people. Recall the word from Exodus chapter 4. Remember this? This is the initial warning that was going to go to Pharaoh. This is in Exodus 4, verse 22. Here was the Lord's word to Pharaoh. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, Pharaoh, I will kill your firstborn son. You see, by opposing God's people, God's own son, then for hundreds of years, abusing them, murdering their babies, beating them, oppressing them, Pharaoh especially, what was he doing? He was just mounting up God's judgment over his head, ready to break at any moment the Lord decides. Such that you see, with the death of the firstborn son, what do you have? Judgment comes. You have eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, son for son. It's about justice. And Pharaoh got what was coming to him. Moses underscores this further as we find in verse 30 of chapter 12. As Pharaoh, and yes, even all of Egypt, rise up in the night and they cry out in anguish as they discover their firstborn sons are all dead. Look at verse 30. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. I mean, can you imagine the wailing? You get up in the night to find your son dead in his bed. And then your grandfather upstairs dead in his bed. All striking every house in a single night. For there was not a house, it says, where someone was not dead. But again, this is about justice. Because this expression, a great cry in Egypt, that word great cry, it's the same word that's used to describe Israel. And she cried out in anguish under her oppressive taskmasters. How Egypt made Israel cry out and groan. In her slavery, now in justice, Egypt is made to groan and cry out to get what's coming to them. Over a grief and pain of God's justice, specifically His fairness, not merely His judgment. His judgment is when He comes to bring justice, but let's look at that justice. It's about what's fair, right, equitable, balanced. Those who oppose God who stand in the way of His promises, who persecute His people, they will reap what they sow. And make no mistake, you will reap what you sow. So, what are you sowing? What do you pour your life into? What are you investing in? such that what should you expect to reap in this life or the next, frankly? What have you vested your life in? What have you poured your life into? That's what you're going to reap. Have you poured your life into your hobbies? 
Your house? Your kids? Your job? Sports? Given the time, attention, and money you give to those things, what should you expect to reap in this life from them? Because that's what would be fair. That's what would be just. How does this play out? So, for example, should you be shocked if you have a crummy marriage if you give no time to it? If you don't invest in it? Should you be shocked to find your kids are wayward and distant if you ignore them or, or you fail to invest in them spiritually? You reap what you sow. As it pertains to God, what are you investing in His kingdom? What are you investing in your pursuit of Him? What should you expect to reap from Him? God doesn't feel close. He feels so far away. I don't know about this Christian life. I tried that. Have you invested your life in Him? He calls you to lay it down. Have you given anything? Well, don't be surprised at what you reap. Because you will. Good or bad. Finally, for Pharaoh, he's feeling really what he has reaped. All that he has sown is coming home to roost. And it finally hits him, so to speak. He relents. Stubborn Pharaoh relents. Look at verse 31 of chapter 12. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night, Pharaoh did, and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. I mean, what a reversal this is. This is, this is a whole 180, isn't it, from where we've been? I mean, do you remember, just as case in point, do you remember the last thing Pharaoh really told Moses? It's the end of chapter 10. If I see your face again, I'm going to put you to death, Moses. I never want to see you again. And now, he's basically begging Moses to come back, just to tell him he needs to go away, all of them. To even then command Moses. This is so interesting. I mean, just the, the pride of Pharaoh. He has to give commands to Moses. You, take your people. Get out of here. But Go. And more than that, what are they going to go do? The end of verse 31. I mean, these are words that must have been, and they were, unimaginable to come out of Pharaoh's mouth and for him to mean them. The end of verse 31. He commands them, go serve the Lord as you have said. No more negotiations. No more compromises. You can just have it all. The whole kit and caboodle. Go and serve the Lord your God just as you asked me from the beginning. Again, what an absolute about face on this. Because again, where did this begin? Remember when the Lord came through Moses to Pharaoh and those first words, let my people go. And what did Pharaoh say? Who's the Lord? Who's Yahweh? Never heard of him. Not letting his people go, that's for sure. We need him around here. And now he's the one commanding them to go serve the Lord. And even very pathetically at the end of verse 32, he adds, and bless me also. I know who the Lord is now, or at least a piece of it, doesn't he? I've wronged him. I need his mercy. And you just have to ask yourself this question. I mean, we've been following Pharaoh through this whole story with his hard heart. And 
Where did all of Pharaoh's resistance and hardness of heart get Pharaoh? What good came to him for that? What did he gain? It availed him nothing. Nothing. Nothing good came from that. Conversely, what did God get? Everything he wanted. And you know what? That's the way it always works. All of Pharaoh's resistance, all of his defiance, all the trouble he bore for resisting God. What did it get for Pharaoh? Nothing good. Only loss, devastation, and things he never wanted. And guess what? God still exactly got his way. God knows how to take care of those who oppose him and his promises. And so, why do we dare keep resisting him? What are we ever going to get out of it? What good's going to come to us in the end if we keep resisting him? If we keep resisting his word? It gives us nothing. Yet, isn't it true as believers that we can easily stand in the way of the will and God, promises of God? Saying, no, that's not for me. I don't like this God. And for what? What are we going to get out of it? Discipline? To be trained and formed into Christ's likeness the hard way? You know, kicking and screaming? Because that's what happens. And that's what the Father can do. And there's some comfort there, like in this verse. We know this. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. It's discipline. It's the God's discipline upon you. Why? Because God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? He disciplines those he loves, it goes on to say, because you're his. So, you're at the supermarket, and there's some child acting out of their mind, screaming, being carried out by the parent. And you think to yourself, well, if that was my kid, things would be a bit different, wouldn't they? Things would happen at home. We'll take care of that. Well, when we rebel and resist, guess what the Lord says? Things are going to happen different at home. I'll take care of that. Why? Because he loves us. Other kids' sons, in the same way, they're not my responsibility. My responsibility as a father is for my sons. I love them. I discipline them. I care for them. That's what the Lord does with us. And again, there's a comfort in that. If we are his sons, if we are a son or daughter, he's not going to leave us to our own devices at least very long. He's not going to leave us in our old habits and desires, not for too long. Why? So what does he do? He disciplines us. He calls us and brings us back. But if you don't recognize this already, and author of Hebrews tells us, discipline hurts. It's supposed to. It's painful. Especially the way our Heavenly Father is apt to do it because He's so insightful. He's able to do that very careful heart surgery, exposing our idols, the things that we love and serve far too much. So, dear brother, save yourself from the grief. Repent now. Turn from that sin now. Stop opposing His will. Surrender it to Christ now. Now, the episode doesn't end there. For not only, back to the text, as Pharaoh, but the Egyptians themselves are the ones who are rising up and driving out the Israelites, their slaves, mind you, out of Egypt, so that they would no longer serve the Egyptians, them, but would serve the Lord. This is Exodus 12, verse 33 and 34. 
And the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. Like, if they sink around, we're doomed. Verse 34, so the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. So you get it. This is why the whole remembrance is revolved around unleavened bread. And we'll talk more to that next time. But again, the point is, how unlikely all of this has been. That those who you once held down, the ones who you beat, the ones who you oppressed, the ones who you terrorized, the ones you held in chains, you are now driving them away from you faster than you can imagine. And more than this, look at verse 35. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. And thus they plundered, robbed, you might say, the Egyptians. They impoverished the Egyptians. You're not only getting out, but you're getting out loaded with riches. And notice, it's not by forcible seizure. It's not like they had to put guns, so to speak, or knives to their throats. They just said, hey, and, and we know from Exodus 3, it's the, the ladies that are actually going about. And they're going to go up and say, can I have your stuff now? And the Egyptians are going to go, of course you can, here. They just fork it over, freely giving over their monies. And why does it work this way? Is it merely because, well, the Jews are God's people and God loves the Jews more than He does the Egyptians? No, that's not it. Again, this is about justice. In a way, the Jews are collecting on back pay. 400 years of slavery. The Egyptians profited off the Jews' back-breaking labor. And on their way out, the Jews are finally getting justice, payment, compensation for their servitude. They're getting their past dues. The point is this. Justice will be done as God has promised. God can take care of any opposition. He will see to it. No matter, brother and sister, how strong the opposition, how strong the desires, how strong the temptations, or how many the obstacles. So do we believe that? Can you really trust Him with that? Put yourself in the Israelite shoes. Sandals, probably. Could you believe these promises to come? I mean, we read them in Scripture, so we're like, yeah, of course. God's awesome. <laughs> didn't you read Exodus? Well, they didn't have Exodus to read. And we don't have an Exodus, so to speak, to read in our life. And yet, we know the end of the story. Knowing the end of the story really changes how you see all of the challenges and obstacles of your life, doesn't it? You know the end of the Exodus story, so that makes you see differently how the Jews respond to their challenges, even slavery. Well, you know the end of your own story, and that should change the way you view the challenges and obstacles in your life. This was struck me as recently as a family. We were watching one of the Hobbit films uh, recently. And uh, one of the children in particular was not very familiar with the story. So during one of the more intense scenes, one of my children just got quite concerned about Bilbo, who's the main character, about whether he was going to survive or not. Is Bilbo about to die as they are shielding their eyes, not wanting to see what's going to happen? To which a sibling then piped in, no, he's in the next movie. 
course he's not going to die. He's going to live through this. True enough. When you have the script, when you have the book that tells you the end of the story, it makes you look at the challenges differently. Instead of watching Bilbo in great terror, not knowing what's going to happen, what are you doing? You're watching going, man, I wonder how the Lord's going to get him out of this one. And that's what we do with the Christian life. We have the end of the story. We know where it's going. We know what Christ will do. That is, despite whatever the challenges, obstacles, temptations, setbacks, whatever the opposition may do, even as you look at the situation with your own eyes and you want to shield them because you're like, God, I I can't even guess how you're going to get through this. How can you provide in that situation, God? How can you build your church when I see this kind of thing going on? How can you honor your name? How can you protect your sheep? How can you sustain my faith and give me the strength when I failed so many times before? How can I handle this? How can I resist the temptation? I don't see how this is possible, God. But we have the end of the story. And God promises for those in Christ to keep all His Word. Whatever the opposition may try to do or have done, No matter how strong they are, God is stronger. And that's what the Exodus proves to us once more. That there are more, so to speak, with God, with us, than with them. So, oh Lord, what are we praying? Open our eyes to see your trustworthy word that will take care of the opposition to all of your promises. Trust him. He can take care of the opposition. Related to that, and we get this already, but we trust Him. Trust God to take care of His people, just as He promised. So if He takes care of the opposition as in dealing with them, eliminating them, He takes care of His people differently. He is, and again, that watch word, literally, here in the text is that He watches them. He cares for them. He can take care of them and bring all of His good promises to pass for them. In other words, He cares for His people. And as we turn then to verses 37 through 42, we see His care for His people. It shows itself, too, in in at least two astronomical ways here. Seen in one, how numerous Israel has become, and then two, for how very long they had been enslaved. But it shows us God's care all along the way. First of all, you just have to be how struck with how unthinkably, really to many, unbelievably huge Israel has become at this time. Verse 37 then. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot, besides the women and children. Now, before we comment about the size, about how big they had become, just first observe this little clue, this little nugget, this little, I think Moses is smiling as he writes this out, because he notes the city they walk out of. And what's the city there? Where does their journey out of Egypt begin, so to speak? says they leave Ramses. Why is that significant? Well, because in chapter 1, the Egyptians built that city, Ramses, how? But on the backs of Jewish slaves. So that city of slavery, the Jews are walking out of, out of their slavery, out of their servitude to freedom. And there's a whole lot of them. Again, back to the text, there is some 600,000 men. That's just the men besides the women and children. 
And that means if you had 600,000 men and add some women and children, the total population of Israel is realistically well over 2 million as they're coming out of Egypt. That is no small group of people. Actually, by what we know of the ancient standards of Egypt in this time, this would have equaled about half, if not more, of Egypt's population. And at this then, even some faithful, Bible-believing, conservative scholars question whether we have then read this correctly. Is the number really 600,000? And the word, really, there is a word that where this debate lies, mainly in that word, thousand. So some suggest that you can take that word thousand and replace it with another word like troop or group or platoon. So you have 600 groups or 600 platoons or 600 troops, which then some of them calculate. That might mean you have a total of 70,000 Israelite soldiers, so to speak, with their women and children then. Maybe you get a number close to 200,000. Still an incredible number. And it's going to be astounding for God to deliver and provide for and direct in the wilderness for 40 years 200,000 or 10 times that much at 2 million. Now, I'm sympathetic with some of the arguments for why we might think it's more like 70,000 or 600 troops, yet I don't think that's correct. I think the way to read it is just like as your text says in your English Bible that there were 600,000 men coming out of Egypt. And I want to tell you why. First, just mainly for they're both textual reasons. In the first place, that word that's translated thousand, well, guess what it often means when it's associated with numbers? It means thousands. So that's pretty straightforward. That means you have 600 thousands. And this is also confirmed by a later census taken at the end of this book, but it also correlates to what's in the book of Numbers. But you don't need to go there. This is like write this in the margin of your Bible or look for the footnote here and go study this afternoon. But in Exodus chapter 38, what happens is this. Each male in Israel is to give a half shekel to construct the sanctuary for all they're going to build. And wouldn't you know, they collected 301,775 total shekels. That's the total. So if they were each giving a half shekel, you double that number, and what do you get? Well, it's 301,000 and so forth. So you get something like 603,550 men. Which wouldn't you know, this is what Exodus 38 tells us, verse 26, a half a shekel by the shekel of the sanctuary for everyone who was listed in the records from 20 years old and upward for 603,550 men. Hmm, seems to match. So that puts Israel then upwards of 2 million total souls. Now, to that technicality, why do I think it's important to talk about? Because there's some debate about that, I get that. But more importantly, it's this. Why is this important? Because of God's promise. See, God had promised long ago to Abraham and barren Sarah. He had promised from them to make a great nation. This is Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. The Lord promised Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And goes on to say, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Or again, when God changes 
Abram's name to Abraham, the Lord promises this. This is Genesis 17, verses 5 and 6. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Even though he doesn't have a child through his wife Sarah yet. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, he promises. And then as you open the book of Exodus, what do we discover? Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Well, look at that. How filled was it? Well, by this time, after hundreds of years, after God made those promises to aged Abraham and barren Sarah, now their family miraculously is in the millions. God is faithful. He keeps His Word. Every bit of it. Even when we could never see or guess how He could do it. And astonishingly, now looking back at Exodus 12, the millions of Jews, they're not even the only ones getting out of Egypt. Look at verse 38. A mixed multitude also goes up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. This mixed multitude is Egyptians joining the Israelites on the way out of town here in this caravan. You can see the promise to bless the nations is already happening. We'll speak more to that, Lord willing, next week. Look then to verse 39. And the Jews and those that join them go out quickly with unleavened bread. And it highlights then at the end of the verse, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. They weren't prepared for this. They weren't allowed to prepare for this. Why? So they would have to trust God. Trust on Him to provide. And that's going to be no easy task to provide for two million people escaping into the desert. And yet, despite all of their doubts... And as we'll come, Lord willing, see in the coming weeks, they're much complaining. God can still watch over and take care of that people too. But next, the text points to God's care for His people and that it's a care for the long haul. And this also is astonishing. Look at verse 40 of Exodus 12. For the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. You know, that's a really long time to live in another country, displaced and enslaved. Especially when you think, and here's the key part, when God has promised you something different and it's a whole lot better. God had promised Abraham and his people the possession that they would have their own land to live in. Canaan. And yet, none of God's people, not a one, had visited that place for a long, long time. And yet, to show God's plan and purpose and His promise in this, even this 400-year stay in Egypt, and that it was going to be horrible, matches perfectly with what God had promised. Actually, do you recall it? When God gave these great promises about a land to Abraham in Genesis, He also promised this very thing for telling the people's future. This is Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. And the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants, that is, slaves there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Huh, wouldn't you know? 400 years is up. And now it's time for the people to get out. 
Now, admittedly, that promise took a long, long time in coming from a human frame of reference, right? I mean, 400 years. Think about our own country. You work backwards even to the Our country's birth, so to speak, isn't even 250 years old. You go back 400 years, you're to January 15th, 1623. That's pretty close, actually, to when the Mayflower lands at Plymouth, and that was in 1620. Imagine starting at Plymouth Rock, and you're waiting and waiting and waiting for 400 years, if that were even possible. And imagine not only are you waiting, but you're waiting in pain, you're waiting in turmoil, you're waiting with questions, you're waiting with grief, you're waiting in difficulty. This was the test of Israel's faith, wasn't it? Was God going to come through on His promise? I mean, how can one wait that long? How long do you have to wait until you say, I don't think He's coming? Have you ever been stood up for a date or a lunch meeting or something like this? I mean, how long do you wait before you just go home? I mean, I think in large part it depends how badly you wanted to see this person, right? When you're in college and your professor is two minutes late, you're like, we're out of here. Forget the test, I'm going home. But when it was a cute girl, you're like, I know it's an hour and a half, she'll be here soon. She just forgot or she remembered she's caught in traffic. The more you want it, the more you hang on. But even still, there's a time where you figure out, you let go. It's not going to happen. Well, here's the thing. With God, if He promised it, it's going to happen for sure. He's going to show up. He always does right on time. Even if it takes 400 years, 430 years, even if it takes 2,000 years. He always keeps His Word. Why? And here's the centerpiece, because He cares. He cares and He's watching over His people. Look at verse 42. So at the end of all that time, it comes down to one specific night when God keeps His Word, always watching over His promise and His people. Verse 42, it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And so this night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. But first notice, and this is the way it should be rendered, it was a night of watching by the Lord. The Lord was watching. But understand, He wasn't just watching as in looking and observing. He was watching and keeping. Actually, that's a synonym for this word watch in the Hebrew is to keep, to guard, to protect He's keeping His people because He's keeping His promise, even after all this time. Why? Because He's, another way to say it, He cares for them. He's not watching them to observe them merely. He's keeping them, protecting them, keeping all of His Word to them. So here's the point. Even through all of the long wait, through the hundreds of years of waiting and watching, He's always looking down for His people and His promise, keeping His Word. Even as you have to walk through all sufferings and trials and difficulties, he hasn't forgotten. But he watches, keeping an eye on his people and his word to bring them about at just the right time. So through those darkest nights of slavery, he might have seemed so distant, seemed so aloof, forgetful, disinterested. 
He wasn't. He was engaged watching with care, making sure every promise would come to pass, counting all of his sheep, so to speak. Even when he seemed silent and his people cried for answers, Lord, how long, how much longer must we wait? He wasn't silent. He'd spoken by his promise. And he wasn't going back on that word, even if from our perspective, if it takes too long. It doesn't. He watches and he keeps us. Such that we can say then with the psalmist in Psalm 121, that's a precious word. I encourage you this afternoon to review it and pray it back to the Lord. But even in those darkest days, the longest of waits, we know He always watches. Listen to this. This is Psalm 121. The psalmist cries, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? It's a crying out, looking to God, where are you? And he says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you. In the Hebrew, it's the same word for watches. He who watches over you will not slumber, but so you can. Behold, he who keeps or watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your watcher or keeper. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will watch over your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Why? Because he's our keeper. He cares, and he's keeping every one of his promises. In response, Israel was to have a night of vigil, watching through the night to remember what? The Lord always watches and keeps his word. To remind generation after generation, it's worth the wait. So brothers and sisters, know this. As our Redeemer prayed in the garden, he prayed to keep your very soul Because he cared, he watched over it, even as he looked at the cross. He watched over us in prayer to keep us. And then he died to cover us and keep us. And he rose from the dead to ever watch over our souls, to live interceding for us. He watches over us to keep us. He died to keep us. So what's the word for us in response? To trust him. To trust him. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Because He's always watching. Let's thank Him for this. Let's pray together.